1: Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me in today's episode is head analyst and chief investor here at My Wall Street, Emmett Savage. In the wake of Silicon Valley Bank's historic collapse, we're going to do a mini history lesson on bankruptcy on Wall Street. We discuss the largest, fastest, and most spectacular capitulations the stock market has ever seen, while closing out the show with some improbable success stories. Enjoy.
2: <laughs>
1: Emmett, how are you? Just myself and yourself today. Um, How you doing, before- Mike? Oh, good. Uh, before we get into it, I just want to see, did you see the thing I put into Slack this week where no one knows what time it is in Lebanon?
2: Yeah. So what's two time zones?
1: Two time zones. So uh, there was a disagreement between, I think, the political authority and the religious authority. And I think the religious authority wanted to de- delay daylight savings time to make it easier for Ramadan. But they didn't, uh, no one No one agreed. So there's two currently two timelines, two time zones in
2: Lebanon at the same time. There's so much room to work with that. I mean, you can be <laughs> early for dinner, late for lunch. You can turn up for work an early. late. I mean, can you imagine the discombobulation that's just ensued in the Lebanon? Oh my God, they were saying the airport's absolute chaos.
1: There was a, I read the article, there was a guy, he said he showed up four hours early for his flight. He was like, I don't know if I'm three hours early or five hours early, but I'm not missing this plane.
2: Do you know, the world kind of falls into two categories. I've always found those who are so punctual, like they're uptight. And I'm one of those, like I, when it comes to timekeeping, my hair is clenched. So I would always go with the, you know, with the the time zone, if you like, that's, uh, that has the greatest margin of error in it. And then I have friends who like, if you say arrive at 12 o'clock, you know, they'll arrive at one o'clock. So often yeah, for those the plane, who legislate. The plane uh, won't I'll, leave us without, won't leave without a crowd. Well, that's it. Exactly. They play I, I, Exactly. And those people, I don't know how they get through life, but they seem to do it. <laughs> now they have an, another margin of error to play with. And I have to say it's probably in their favor as opposed to the people who are like me. Yeah. Um,
1: all right, well, let's get into it. And I want you to set up today's episode because we've kind of got a special topic. Uh, so before we get into the nitty gritty, um, why did you suggest this topic for the pod and kinda of what do you think it's gonna what do you think it's gonna benefit for our listeners to go through this episode?
2: Yeah, well actually I thought it's gonna be a really fun episode, to be honest, Mike, and I just recently you know, found myself, my energy levels dropping during the podcast because it just wasn't fun enough for me anyway. And I just thought, well, look, there's lots of news. There's always news. And the big hot topic in our lives over the last couple of weeks has been Silicon Valley Bank. Um, And it kind of got me thinking, well, what? What were the largest bankruptcies in the reasonably recent past, you know, in, a, in modern America's history? What were the fastest and what were the most unusual success stories? So I, as you know, Mike slacked you yesterday and said, hey, let's chat about these. Let's dive in, find a couple of businesses that fell from the highest of highs those that fell very, very fast and those that actually made it um, despite themselves. And um, I'm not, I don't like celebrating the downfall of any business or person or country. I'm not into it. But nonetheless, I thought the the speed at which Silicon Valley Bank failed and the speed at which banks fail in general is something of interest because for all our efforts, it, we're not, the world's best at predicting them. And even the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, um, as far as I know, two Wednesdays ago was in a town hall where he was getting questions about what does he do as part of his morning routine. And then by Friday, the bank had caved it. And, and that to me just says it all. So I just thought it'd be fun for us to talk about these ki- type of stories. But what I suppose they also uh, accentuate is the the dangers of of investing I mean the stock market investing is not for the faint of heart um but it also there's a a deeper message which is it 's really important that you have trust in the management of the businesses in which you 're investing and it 's difficult that 's something it 's not you can 't just log on to yahoo finance and say what 's the trustworthiness of the CEO of this business, but we have to know that the businesses are, in so far as we can, the businesses that we own are run by people who align with our personal values and who are doing a job that we believe uh, is as good as could be done. So I just thought it'd be a fun topic for us to dive into.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I suppose it should be in the back of an investor's mind as well. Like that is a very real risk and that the, the mm-hmm. shareholders are the first to be completely wiped out, you know, bondholders, depositors, whatever else, there's a good chance there's some money coming back. Shareholders yeah. are gone. See you later. So so just to keep yeah. that in mind and probably in the back of your head when you're looking at a company, And I, I suppose especially financials and banks too, where it can all go, all go downhill very fast.
2: Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, so let's dive in. Yeah.
1: You kick us off
2: there with the your pick for the largest. Right. So the largest bankruptcy clearly... That's not a matter of opinion, it's a matter of fact. So we're just choosing giant businesses that went under that interest us and and you slacked me the one you're going with, so I went with another. And uh, I'm going to go with WorldCom. And it's one I remember because it was at the uh, height of my interest as an amateur investor. And it was basically WorldCom was founded in the early 80s, 1983, by three guys and a few investors. And the three guys were Murray Waldron, William Rector, and an early investor known as Bernie Ebers, which is a name a lot of people will recognize if they're around at that time. So he, so here's the story. After the breakup of AT&T, WorldCom was founded with a focus um, as a long distance discount service, an LDDS, which was known in America at the time. And it secured a really small amount of capital. It secured a $650,000 loan, which allowed it to buy the technology to route long-distance calls. And the reason it was able to get going with such a small amount of capital was that at the time, the the US courts had ordered AT&T to lease its phone lines to new companies at cheap rates. So this guy, Bernie Ebers, um, who at that point was the company's CEO, was able to offer their customers very, very low rates for long-distance calls. Um, The company pursued acquisitions so aggressively. I remember at the time it felt like there was a news of an acquisition by WorldCom every few weeks. And they ended up buying, as far as I recall, 30 rival companies in order to gain market share. So in a really short time, WorldCom became one of America's leading long-distance phone companies. So all was good at WorldCom HQ. It grew and it grew. And at the peak of the dot-com bubble, before all hell broke loose, it became one of America's leading long distance phone companies. Perhaps it's leading long distance, like everybody knew WorldCom. Um, however, the tech boom turned to bust, as we all know, and companies slash spending on telecom services and equipment and WorldCom resorted to some accounting tricks to maintain its appearance (laughs) of is, is
1: is tricks a bit of a generous term there.
2: <laughs> yeah, oh it is for sure. I mean, look, th- th- this was a business that had become worth 175 billion dollars. I mean, that's a big wow. business. I yeah, never exactly. knew it. That's good. Yeah. Oh, it was huge. It was absolutely huge. Um so the so executives what happened was at at Welcome HQ the execs needed a way to prove that the business was still financially viable. Uh, to its board and its shareholders. However, at this point, lots of investors were quite suspicious of Bernie Eber's story. Uh, There was a funny smell, especially after the Enron scandal had had broken in the summer of uh, 2001, I think. So as things played out, it came to light that WorldCom used Uh, what's the the expression, like unquestionable or questionable (laughs) accounting techniques to hide its financial position, which inflated its profits. And this amounted to billions in capital expenditures being improperly recorded on the books. And in order to hide this falling profitability, it inflated net income and cash flow, Um, It capitalized expenses, which is a big no-no. If you've ever worked in a Sarbanes-Oxley business, you just know CapEx and how you capitalize work is is just something they obsess on. Um, And and the reason is you can't, uh, like an expense is not a capital asset that you can't depreciate. So it exaggerated profits by $3.8 billion in 2001 and nearly $800 million in Q1 of 2022, uh, reporting a profit of $1.4 billion instead of a net loss. Okay, so, so it's really yeah. taken the Michael like, Oh, yeah, totally taken the Mickey. So at the peak heat, this guy, Bernie Ebers, was forced to step down as CEO in April 2002 uh, when it came to light that he had borrowed $408 million from Bank of America to cover margin calls in 2000, using WorldCom shares as collateral. So literally this house of cards, someone had just pulled a card from the bottom. Um, and as a result of this kind of shenanigans, he lost his fortune. And actually in 2005, he was convicted of securities fraud. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison, Um And that's probably why his name is familiar to a lot of our listeners. But what you what what I love about this story um, is several individuals played a key role in exposing the fraud at WorldCom, Um, and the, the the key players were a woman called Cynthia Cooper, who was the vice president of WorldCom's internal audit department, and Jean Morse, another auditor. They they became really concerned about several inconsistencies in the the company's financial records, um, especially around the reserves used to boost the company's income. Like the company's capital expenditures were questionable. Um, um, and, And by the way, another employee was fired over raising the very same concerns. And basically the business, the accounts were full of complicated accounting mumbo jumbo which was in the news at the time, like prepaid capacity, um, which was used to hide the movement of capital. So these two players, Cooper and Morris, conducted investigations on their own, as well as an audit. And they were challenged by the company's CFO, a guy called Scott Sullivan, who requested that the process be delayed. Um, Cooper and Morris they con- t- contacted KPMG, which was uh, the external auditor, who at that time had replaced... Uh, Anderson, Arthur Anderson, um, as well as WorldCom's audit committee. So the whole thing was a hot mess. But there, there's a tiny sparkle of heartening news from all of this, uh, and from this terrible chapter. As a result of her diligence, Cooper was named a Person of the Year by Time and was featured on the magazine's cover in 2002. And that's something I love about America. It really celebrates superheroes, no matter where they come from. And that was a brave move. Can you imagine the pressure that she was under at that time? Um, But she saw uh, wrongdoing and decided to push ahead with her conviction uh, based on, on, on the fact she had at hand. You know, absolutely amazing. On the other hand, however, Ebers, um, he was convicted on nine counts of securities fraud. And as I said, sentenced to 25 years in prison in 2005. He got out in 2019, just at the very end of 2019 in December for health reasons, having served 14 years of his sentence. And the other guy, the former CFO, Scott Sullivan, he received a five-year jail sentence after pleading guilty uh, and testifying against Ebers, you know, so yeah. knives were out. I, I should also give a special mention to Arthur Anderson, uh, which was I, Arthur Anderson's gone. Is gone, isn't it? I think that's a, a they're, they're not around anymore. Anderson is this an a, what, accounting firm? I've never. Heard yeah. Of it. Yeah, no, I I think they're gone. They were a hot, they were, they were a big name back when, but yeah, I'm I'm 90% certain they're gone, but, uh, they audited WorldCom's 2001 financial statements and reviewed WorldCom's books for Q1 2002. And it was found to have ignored memos from WorldCom executives, informing them that the company was inflating profits with this improper accounting. Anyways, look, WorldCom filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the summer of 2002. It was the second largest long-distance phone company at that time, and it had assets of something like $104 billion and debts of $41 billion. So it fell from grace and went kaput.
1: Yeah, when when you see
2: this level
1: of grand fraud in such a way, like, is in talking with FTX and stuff, and you're just like, how do they expect to get away with it? Is it just kind
2: mm-hmm. of they're just digging a hole deeper and deeper, or what is happening? What's quite interesting is we know all the ones that have been found out, and here in mm-hmm. Ireland, and you're there was saying a, the a ones. Bank. The ones yeah, that haven't been just, found yet. Yeah, this is true. So what? how what do we not know? That's quite yeah. interesting. mean there was a, a giant bank here in Ireland that that went through a not altogether dissimilar uh downfall. Um what's, what was it called again, Mike? It was it's five doors up from us in Marion Row. Uh the bank that failed, Sean Fitzpatrick's Prima- bank. From the USB? Uh, no, 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 no. Um Hoster-Bank. No, no, There's no, it's a big bank that failed. Anyway, look, let's not cut it that. Sorry, I'm it's funny when they, here. no, that's okay. But the uh, the point is that, um, why, why can't I remember that name? Anyway, um, as, uh, listeners, please send us an email. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we, uh, my point is that when, when it's found out, it's found out. And it makes for high drama and business channels and newspapers love reporting on it. But I, I sometimes wonder what's happened somewhere where they actually managed to get away with it. You just don't no. know
1: yeah so the moral of the story is don't trust anyone called Bernie on Wall Street um <laughs> sorry Auntie Bernie I don't think you listen to this podcast <laughs> um, but your
2: your auntie Bernie doesn't work on Wall Street so she's no okay. she doesn't serve Mullingar county Council <laughs> yeah. um,
1: okay i uh I am gonna kick off with the obvious one and I think everyone is a bit too. Too familiar with this, unfortunately, and that is Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers. Um, It was the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history uh, in terms of assets and debt. So it had six hundred billion dollars in assets and six hundred thirteen billion dollars in debt at the time it filed. Um, When we talk of systemic risk and the ripple effects and contagion and all the kind of buzzwords that have been flying around in the past few weeks, Lehman Brothers is this go-to and kind of the the warning for everything um it's one of the key factors behind the great financial crisis and deepening that into a kind of mega global recession there are plenty of books and movies i think most people listening to the podcast will have seen big short and unfortunately they'll kind of all know about the after effects and the global crisis i wouldn't say that it caused but that it was a big factor behind Uh, like there's a lot more at the root cause than just Lehman Brothers, but it certainly helped. Um it's a big reason why kind of everyone had their knickers in a twist over Silicon Valley Bank there recently, even though you know it was a much more niche, uh, smaller kind of ripple effects. The Fed were quick to guarantee deposits and all the rest. We've kind of we've seen that movie before and no one was risking a sequel. I think mean, to give context, Silicon Valley Bank had uh, debt and assets, it was around $200 billion. So think about Lehman Brothers, three times the size. And we've seen the reaction from Silicon Valley Bank. Um, the root causes were, again, we've been over this in the big short. But uh, for a quick recap, is pretty much deeply invested in the U.S. housing market. So buying up books of mortgage debt with considerable le- leverage. So I think a common theme in this episode will be either taking on debt for risky financial uh, plays or... Wide scale fraud. That's kind of the two main common themes behind bankruptcy, quick bankruptcies, anyways. Uh so we know the story when the housing market peaked and it began to crash. This exposed the company, left it with billions in subprime and low-rated mortgages that it couldn't sell. And this led to not being able to pay off its creditors, a credit cut, credit crunch, and then its eventual collapse. One of the world's largest banks collapsing in such a way obviously had long-term side effects across the globe. There was a wide-scale panic the global recession kind of exposed countries and banks uh, uh, that were availing of subprime subprime lending so i mentioned that Lehman brothers obviously weren't the only ones at this we know that all too well here in ireland there's a famous story of the fella going into the bank in ireland for a 500k loan to build a house and they wouldn't give it to him they'd only give him a three million three million euro loan to buy a half an estate instead and The Irish banking sector knows all about it too. It kind of got completely rocked by all this. Um, But they're saying the the Lehman Brothers really exposed the extent to what the subprime lending crisis kind of built. This complete, as you said earlier, this complete house of cards. Yeah, and it's tough, I think, to see a bankruptcy having more of an impact than Lehman Brothers. The widespread Mm -hmm. panic we've seen, the freezing credit markets, A loss of faith in the banking system completely. All the all the measures that came after the Dodd Frank Act in the U.S. NAMA, all the austerity measures across the EU. This has gone beyond all kind of national efforts. So, like, as in every kind of country had some form of recompense after this happened. So, in my eyes, I think it's the most impactful. The largest Mm. and and the most significant, we'll say, in the recent memory, or maybe maybe of all time. Um, Yeah, it's true. It's true.
2: Like you're you're on the money. Like if Anglo, oh Anglo Irish, it just came out. So Anglo Irish was the bank that that failed in Ireland catastrophically, and we're a small nation with only a handful of banks, and the the roots of that problem you know, they led to some very, very significant um, problems with Ireland's, not only credit rating, but the ability for the the people in the nation to actually raise debt themselves. It was a huge, huge issue in our country. And we look at something like Lehman Brothers and the complexity of the backroom in those businesses. And what I mean by the backroom is these CFDs at the time was like, what? what are these credit default swaps? I mean, it was very hard to understand, but I remember watching a a YouTube video. How, how How does it all work? It was hand puppet stuff, but basically how debt and poorly graded debt by Moody's is wrapped up into these different notes that are sold from bank to bank to bank and passed around from one to another. And the absolute complexity. I think it was on our recent podcast, was it last week, Mike, or maybe the week before, I was saying how I really avoid banks and pharma and fashion, but like the complexity of banks is actually higher than pharmaceuticals as far as I'm concerned. Lehman Brothers was a really good example of that, where we could see that the the actual assets on this company's books were really difficult. You need a PhD in maths to understand what actually they had and insights Mm. that lay far beyond retail investors yeah well we talk about
1: leverage and debt and how once a company kind of starts adding significant levels of debt that is a much riskier business and this is a normal Mm. business we'll talk about and then when you think of banks and like that's their whole business Mm. is dealing in debt and leveraging their books to get returns and all the rest so so yeah i think when we're talking about bankruptcies and and why you avoid banks, especially it, it, it's clear. Like is in this this concept of kind of a faith in a bank and the and the mob mentality. And once once faith is lost in the banking system or a particular bank and the bank runs and everything else, that's where the risk factors really show up. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh wait, not that it's not that it's a house of cards, but there is a lot of um there is a lot of psychology behind a bank and. The bank runs and everything. So yeah, I think the Lehman Brothers really exposed, I think, I think its key factor was really exposing subprime lending across the globe. Mm. And when it went down, it was like uh hold your pearls kind of moment for all financial institutions.
2: Mm. Um, yeah. I remember at the time ringing friends of mine who, work, uh, who worked in, in banking at senior level and It was very difficult to get any level of insight as to what does this mean for their bank Um, and i know them well enough that they weren't trying to you know hold their cards close to their chest and uh, this is the thing when when contagion happens you just don't know how dark and far the roots are stretching you really just don't know it's a, a and that's the whole thing about the global banking system and there's been so much written about it recently and discussed in the last couple of weeks and and many chapters in 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 decades gone such as 2008 but really the it all comes down to trust when you run for their bank runs happen all the time here in ireland there was a couple of neo banks a couple of years ago uh i think one was called rabo bank and the other was another dutch bank and uh again uh, there was a loss of trust and people were lining up outside the only bank branch to take their cash out which you know, had a devastating effect on those banks. It is a very complex area, and a uh, layman gets your gets your gold star for the biggest uh, downfall over the last couple of years. Yeah,
1: it's enough awful gold star, is the right, right award yeah, I would get. What's give the out. opposite?
2: Wooden spoon? Yeah, it's not a, a wooden gold spoon. Star,
0: it's yeah. The
2: inverse. Perfect. Yeah,
0: okay. Listen. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. We move on
2: to fast bankruptcies, ones that fast, happened at that a speed good. of light. <laughs> you kick right, us okay. off there, so Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so as I said, at the top of the cast, we, we were all taken aback at the speed of Silicon Valley Bank's downfall. Um, and that, you know, kind of led me to wonder, you know, what were the fastest post IPO bankruptcies? Uh, and there's a lot of them. There's loads of companies that failed in less than a year, like Cogent, for example, which was a software company that went public in '86. And two days after IPO, its founder and CEO, Bill Melton, was fired by the company's board. He was accused of two mis- days. Mis- Two days, two days. He was accused of misrepresenting the company's financials, inflating its revenue numbers, and less than a year after going public, it filed for bankruptcy, uh, as far as I remember, in May 87. Like, others went kaput in less than six months. There's one called Agri Processors, which was a kosher meat processing company that went public in October 07, and then in May 08, the company's plant in Iowa was raided by federal agents who arrested 400 undocumented workers, seized company records, which ultimately led to a series of lawsuits. Um, I, I can imagine it did, as well as investigations at a state level, at a, you know federal agencies, into all things around the company, most specifically its labor practices and its financial dealings. And then by November 2008, just six months after going public agri-processors, filed for bankruptcy however i'm going to stay on the subject of telecoms right so i kicked off with worldcom i'm going to stay on the telecoms train and i'm going to talk for a minute about genuity um it was founded in 1998 i, I remember actually in in 99 getting in and out of the stock which is a stupid thing to do but i, I remember i was a shareholder in genuity for a little while um and it, actually, it must have been 98 I invested. Uh, anyway, look, I, I remember the business. And it was a subsidiary of GTE. And it was spun off as a separate company through its own IPO. And it was notable. The reason it came onto my radar at that time was it had raised like $2 billion through its IPO process. $1.92 billion, which... Made it one of the largest IPOs in history. Yeah, I was about to say, back in the day as well, that was right up there. Oh, it's surely. insane. Like Alibaba, I think, was was Alibaba the biggest IPO in history? Um, I think it raised 25000000000 billion. Uh, I'd have to uh, goog that to check it. But yeah, I, this was a huge, huge IPO in the late 90s, $2 billion. So despite the gargantuan amount of capital that landed in the bank account post-IPO, it struggled to compete in the highly competitive telecoms industry. I mean, it is a pit fight. Telecoms is a pit fight. It always has been. It always will be. They struggle with differentiating. I mean, when you look, when you think about your, uh, even your cell phone provider, uh, they wish for you to choose them over your handset, but that ain't ever going to happen. If someone said, you want this network or that, or Apple or Samsung, people's loyalty lies... More so with their, their handsets and their network providers. It's a very difficult business. So anyway, these guys, they faced declining revenues, mounting losses. And in November 2002, just two and a half years after IPO, filed for bankruptcy, which at the time was the largest and most high profile bankruptcy, as far as I think, as far as I know in the early 2000s. Like to, to have raised $2 billion and basically be out of runway just two, two and a half years later it's just nuts. Silicon Valley bank, eat your heart out. It shows as
1: well, I suppose, the kind of heady Heights of the dot-com bubble where they were able to go and mm-hmm. raise 2 billion in an IPO with clearly not much of a business plan or or track record, I suppose.
2: Oh, entirely. I mean, look, I, I have another one for you, Mike. There, there's the world, the world, the, 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 The history book is full of kind of zany stories of businesses that floated and then went under. And I have one that's just completely nuts. And and it's not quite the stock market, it's more the commodities market. And it's about these two lads called the Hunt Brothers. And they basically, well, they were born rich and wanted to get richer. So these lads, the Hunt Brothers, decided that they were going to corner the silver market in the late 70s and early 80s. And um, they they were known as... Uh, so one of the brothers was called Nelson Bunker Hunt and his brother William Herbert Hunt, they were the sons of a Texas oil billionaire. I don't recall his name, but like these two fellas, they didn't need to do anything if they didn't wish to, but they wanted to get more. And they believed that inflation would cause the price of silver to skyrocket. So they began buying up large amounts of silver future contracts and physical silver. And by by 1980, I think it was in Q1 Q2 1980, they had accumulated one third of the world's supply of silver. A third. <laughs> two, f- I, two flutes in
1: Texas <laughs> I had a third yeah, the, of the silver market.
2: <laughs> they had one third of the world's How silver. How did that happen? I know, exactly. But here's the, you know, here's the problem with greed. The price of silver began to fall in early 1980 and the Hunts were forced to sell their holdings to cover their losses. And this kind of had the avalanche effect. It it led to a massive sell-off in silver and the price of of the metal dropped from a high of about $50 an ounce to around $10 per ounce in just a couple of months. And the Hunt brothers' attempt to just become hyper-rich, ended in, in a disaster, a complete disaster. One of them lost a billion dollars. He faced criminal charges for market manipulation. And the whole sordid affair led to new regulations on commodities um, to prevent similar market manipulations in the future. So uh, so there you go. You asked me for one uh, idea. Four, yeah, And you got four, exactly. So four ideas yeah. for kind of fast or, or crazy downfalls. Mike, Commodi- commodities. <laughs> oh No, I
1: just want to say the commodity markets are like the wild west, though, aren't they? Like we we're they, talking about JP Morgan yeah. Chase. I read more into that last week, buying uh, about two bit two million worth of nickel. Yeah. So that is just sitting in a warehouse somewhere in uh, London, and that is just used to guarantee future contracts on nickel. So the interesting part about it is that while it was while it was a bag of rocks, but 2 tons yeah. of rocks or whatever. It was it was purpose like it was delivering its purpose of being able to trade futures based on the rocks that were in some warehouse.
0: Yeah. You know what I mean? Like
1: so if no one found out that they were rocks, there would never have been an issue. If people just thought they were nickels. So Sorry, I, I'm even confused in myself saying it, but like how wild the <laughs> commodities markets and the futures markets are that like just because people think it's a bag of nickel and not a bag of rocks, it actually oh, is a bag of nickel on the futures markets and stuff.
2: Did you ever see the movie Trading Places when you were a Trading
1: kid? Places, yeah. With, uh, it was a good one. Oh, I liked it there. then.
2: I don't know if. Yeah, and Pork Bellies. I remember when I saw the movie first, it was in the cinema and I couldn't believe that you could buy an asset called pork bellies yeah. and you know to this day you can buy whatever you wish any commodity orange juice or zinc um, but in, in reality unless your business needs that commodity I don't think you should go near it you know mm-hmm. I think uh, sure, it was, uh,
1: was, was it last year or the year before where crude oil was going for a negative price
2: Yes, yeah, exactly. And people, like
1: yeah. the most Google term for the day was like, can I store crude oil in my shed or something?
2: <laughs> of course it was. I mean, who didn't look it up? Um, but, you know, we think of commodity trading and we're drifting here, a bit, but commodity trading is the original commerce. You know, it goes back to ancient, ancient times, thousands of years ago, where uh, commodities were the way commerce was was conducted and a bag of salt was exchanged for livestock and, and taking futures and stock options are based on contracts that were actually created in Damascus, where if you needed a steady supply of something for your business, you could pay a little bit now. So the vendor would guarantee you uh, a fixed price for a point into the future and that has, has a dotted line all the way into the current day but anyway look that's that's uh history as opposed to story so let's go yeah oh,
1: that's interesting though um but i am going to kick off the fastest with long-term capital management i'm gonna oh, yeah. say ltc LTCM yeah for sure um this is a really interesting story and i think it should be some sort of like investing lesson or like you know aesop's fables for wall street maybe madoff's fables uh we'll go with but the story is is this really hyped up hedge fund um it was set up in 1994 by a man called john merriweather he was bond trader at solomon brothers um mm-hmm. it said that his bond arbitrage division which was he was the head of depending on who you ask now this could be very um very circumstantial evidence but it was responsible for 80 to 100 percent of solomon's total global earnings from the late 80s until the early 90s get so, it out you're kidding me yeah not messing around there and i think he left in some sort of scandal so I, I don't want to give him too much credit here but there was definitely hype behind him but he wasn't the main story the main story is two lads called myron skulls and robert merton so that does those, does those names ring a bell at all no never heard of no them. i never so even heard the company
2: what's it called again lvmh uh,
1: <laughs> lvmh ltcm uh, long-term okay. capital management so uh-huh. they came up they're credited i'll say credited and not came up uh, with this thing called the black skulls model. Um oh, I say yeah, I've credited. Heard of
2: that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I say credited because there's an investor, Ed Thorpe, who mm-hmm. was already using this same method. Um, he's actually a really interesting guy. I'm reading his book at the minute. This is why I kind of picked this company. So he actually invented card counting. And oh. then he went he went into investing and he he kind of figured out this uh so the black skulls model is this it's called convergence trading. And it's essentially, you see two uh, two securities that prices are intrinsically linked and you kind of do a bunch of maths, <laughs> which yeah. is an awful way of uh, abstracting a lot of work there. But eventually you you figure out which one is mispriced in relation to other, each other. Oh. So if, <clears throat> uh, I think Ed Thorpe did warrants and then stock price, the actual stock. So if a warrant was mispriced to the stock, He would buy the undervalued security and he would short the overvalued security. And what should happen is that the two would converge and you would make profit on both sides, if that makes sense. So like a very rudimentary look at it could be, say, you'd look at Pepsi stock and Coke stock. And you would say this should be the traditional valuation. And according to that, Pepsi is overvalued, Coke is undervalued. I'd buy Coke and short Pepsi. <clears throat> so that kind of is the basis for LTCM and their trading strategy. And it's funny because I think this story is so interesting. First, you have these absolute geniuses, Nobel Prize winning economists behind it. But there's such a difference between theory and practice. Mm. And this was the all the theorizing playing out in the real world. And it was working amazingly for a while. So it started off its first year. It delivered annualized returns after fees of around twenty-one percent, forty-three percent in its second year, and forty-one percent in its third year. So they're like lighting the world on fire. That's no one is able to really achieve those gains, and because they come from such high stock, and because there's such a system around it, that is like that's where that's where the hype is. Do you know what I mean? But and there's a big but in nineteen ninety eight. It lost a whopping four point six billion. In you can guess how long it took him to lose that? I don't know, a week two? Less than four months it took him to lose four point six billion in nineteen ninety eight. Um, and basically, okay, it's I the same. I thought, old thought story. we
2: were talking. Pre- yeah, you know, there's plenty of time in four months to figure.
1: <laughs> it's the same old story. we so really fast. <laughs> so it's it's the same old story. It was over leveraged. Um, yeah. And it got rocked. There's two separate financial crises. So the Russian financial crisis in 1998 and the Asian financial crisis in 1997, which kind of had after effects that bled into 1998. And in the space of, uh, I think it went it went public, it, it IPO'd in 1997 and was completely capitulated about six months later. It had to be bailed out by the Fed uh, for three and a half billion dollars because they feared... It would have systemic risk. They were borrowing so much money and all the rest uh, is li- liquidated and dissolved soon after. And yeah, that's.
2: that's so did the fellas behind it end up? You know, were they up creek, or were they? Were they okay? So they got um. They the the best part about this
1: story is so they got their Nobel prizes awarded in 1997, and this right. all happened in 1998. as well. <laughs> yeah uh there was there was in fairness now there was a fair bit of criticism around the fund strategy like while it was happening and before it was happening it's interesting actually uh warren buffett and charlie munger uh got offered to be early investors and they turned it down they said it was too risky um and uh, yeah i think it's just a lesson that like all this modeling and quant investing it's it's tough to recreate real life outliers and then obviously what LTCM fell into as well was that they over themselves to achieve returns. It, it, I think there's an interesting story here. Like you asked the question, would today's technology could it have survived and prospered? Obviously I think they would need to flesh out their risk management department, but oh, yeah, in terms of kind of the quant funds you see now succeeding, there's a really interesting kind of conversation of did LTCM was it just too early for its time or not? Um, so yeah, mm. they're they're kind of my they're my go-to in terms of speed, but I think it's a really interesting story as well. It's absolutely fascinating. What's the name of that book? Oh no, that's the the Ed Thorpe book is the uh, Thorpe book. that's called A Man for All Markets. That's just on him. He he's that's an interesting book as well. There is a book on LTCM.
2: I'll find it. Um, What did they get a Nobel Prize in? Just out of curiosity. Oh, it's called (laughs) literature uh,
1: in in economics. Uh, The
2: LTCM book is uh, when genius failed. You know, you get a Nobel Prize in economics. It opens the door for you to um, do whatever you want the the next year, (laughs) because you have you have the utmost trust of the public, and it's a fact. You know, you you have proven yourself to be intellectually superior or elite in a field of study so when you hear that this person Nobel economic uh prize winning um you know prize winner has launched anything you go right that has an edge that's just human nature and I could saw you, could I, you, yeah could you imagine the Nobel
1: committee so like obviously they set up the fund in 94 and like you know the the returns were the the theory like actually working in practice and they're like okay that's it we'll we'll award you this you've you've proven your point and <laughs> six months later they're getting bailed out by the fed they're five billion in the hole and it's like well we've got moved to move too quick there but well, we should
2: do a podcast on the largest nobel bankruptcies like- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or the biggest fall of uh, falls from grace post and nobel prize winning oh geez um, right go on okay. what are we doing okay let's go let's bring it upbeat a bit
1: okay oh, so before we get too positive <laughs> um, I just want to promo uh, charging and fearless so this is your weekly reminder if you haven't already to sign up for our newsletter it's a free email in which you receive a brand new stock pitch every week we promise it'll be the most valuable 30 seconds you spend in your inbox this week's email is carrying the subject line a surging spanish pool maker Um. okay positivity optimism uh, we couldn't close out the show with just talking about disaster after disaster after disaster. So to restore mm-hmm. a small bit of faith in capital markets, we're going to give you two kind of, I suppose, improbable success stories. Is that a fair way to say it, Emmett? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of quirky against all odds businesses that are somehow not even surviving, but thriving in spite of everything. So uh, Emmett, do you want to kick us off with your
2: improbable success story? Okay, I think the backstory of every business that gets to IPO is probably improbable (laughs) and in many ways quirky. But one of the more unusual ones that I found is perhaps the Cheesecake Factory, which was, as all of our American listeners know, or which is, as all of American listeners know, a chain of casual dining restaurants. Uh, They have a big, extensive menu. I was looking at it yesterday. It's just unbelievable. It's like like a book,
1: like. Oh, have you been? No, I haven't, but I've heard about it. It's like a full-on, like hard, hard book, hard copy. Oh, right. It's very
2: eclectic cuisine, and they've things like glam burgers and the likes. I I went through the menu yesterday with a little bit too much, you know, research standards. I really was interested. Anyway, if you want to get a seventeen-dollar burger, go to Cheesecake Factory. It went public in 1992, and its IPO was notable for a couple of reasons. For one, the company had only been in business for a few years. Um, Well, certainly by 1992 standards. It was founded in 1978 by an entrepreneur called David Overton. And despite its relatively short history, it had followed and developed, or I should say, a really loyal base of diners and followers. and, And it had this reputation for creative menu offerings. And on top of that, its IPO was unusual because the company had no debt, nothing, and never had to borrow money, which is To me, that's like finding a a talking dog, to have a business that never had to borrow a penny. Its IPO was a huge success. Its shares soared 90, or no, I think it was 70% on opening bell uh, on the first day of trading. And it was, I think, quite an unusual story that it went public so fast with such loyal customers and without a penny's debt. And another example, sorry, I know you only asked for one, but another example in the same vein is um, Shake Shack, which I'd say... Is a familiar name to a lot of our listeners. It was founded in two thousand and four. as a hot dog cart in New York City's Madison Square Park. And JT, my co-founder and I, actually were at it. Coincidentally, we didn't go there because we're stock nerds, but we went to uh, Madison Square went Park there. and got a hot dog. There And there because you were hungover. We were there because we're hungry. No, not oh, hungover. I mean hungry. And it was quickly. Uh, it quickly gained a following for delicious food, unique outdoor dining, that kind of stuff. And it expanded really rapidly, uh, opening its first brick-and-mortar location in 08. And it went public in 2015. And its IPO was notable, uh, again, for an unconventional approach uh, to the stock market. So instead of using a traditional roadshow, which you do pre-IPO, to market its shares to institutional investors, the company held a series of shack camps in its restaurants inviting potential investors to come and learn about the company's history and its values and its menu offerings. And like Cheesecake Factory, its IPO was a huge success. Shares blasted up about 100% on the first day of trading. And as far as I know, today, the company has 300 locations around the world. And it's funny, like every stock market, Mike, is is an autobiography of its country. So and I've probably said this before in the podcast like if you looked if you're an alien from Mars and you flew down and you looked at the Irish Stock Exchange known as Euronext Dublin you'd see that there's only maybe 60 floated companies comprising of builders and 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 um dairy producers and aviation and it's a mini autobi- It's a, it's an autobiography or a biography of that business of that country. You could say it's a small country by the number of listings. And here's core its core industry. You go to America, and same if you go to the, the, the whatever any stock exchange, the Mumbai stock exchange, or if you go to uh, any stock exchange in the world. But when you go to America, it's surprising the number of restaurants that are listed and fast casual dining. And slow fancy dining. Every type of dining is as much a part of American history, you know, as anything. So, it, uh, so when you when you look at the storyboard of America's IPOs, it wasn't shocking to me to find a, two of the very fast successful stories where restaurants in the fast casual area. I mean, there's loads of other ones like the fastest company to go from IPO. Uh, is probably moderna which as i think most people know is a biotech company it developed its mrna therapeutics and it was founded in 2010 it had a focus on this technology caught the attention of well everyone uh and in 2018 it went public with uh an ipo that raised 600 million dollars 604 million dollars so like i think that was the fastest company that went from Opening the door of the office on day one to IPO, uh, so kind of eight years for Moderna, and um, yeah, so there's my few a mm-hmm. uh, few fast, somewhat quirky success stories. I love the I love the juxtaposition
1: there. Like we're talking about uh, one of the, the most successful traders on Wall Street, combining with two Nobel Prize <laughs> winning economists, <laughs> like all set for you couldn't think of a better setup to go and make money. Yeah, crashing and then some fella selling his mother's cheesecakes and a food cart <laughs> that are multi-billion dollar companies thriving it's it's it, it yeah. i suppose it just shows the kind of the intricacies yeah. and the nuances of of investing as well Oh and yeah that, and that and i think i'm going to get into that with uh, my pick as well is that it doesn't really matter how complex or how simple your business is as long as you can grow add revenue grow your profits Wall Street's going to love you. Um, And with that in mind, I'm going to set up this, my last pick. So it's, I think, probably the most unlikely story on Wall Street. Um, So from 1992 to 2022, the 30-year period there, that kind of brings in full-on technological revolution, software eats the world, all that. The best performing stock over that period. Not Amazon, not Netflix, not Apple, but an energy drinks company called Monster Beverage. So if you invested a grand in its IPO, I think it was in 1995, Um, to the end of that study, which was July 2022, I think it's even grown since, you'd have nearly 3 million. Uh, it's about 300,000% return or a CAGR that's nearly up at 40%. And that's just that's a company selling Red Bulls in a bigger can. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm, absolutely um, unbelievable. What was yeah. it
2: called uh, before? It was called Monster. It was like uh, it's uh, so. There's it a long backstory natural. there. It was something yeah, natural. It's, like uh, it's Hansen's, called uh, Hanson's Natural.
1: Hanson Natural. Um, yeah, yeah. and it goes far. It goes as far back as 1935. Well oh. certainly wasn't called Monster back then. Selling enough caffeine <laughs> to give a horse <laughs> palpitations, but. The other thing is, I was thinking about this. Coke probably had the cocaine back in the drink then. So who knows what was happening? Maybe it was the time for energy drinks. Um, But no, it was called Hanson Natural. So fruit juices and sodas and the like. And then up until 2012, that's when it made the switch to Monster Beverage. So basically it was making all of its money from its energy drinks. And it decided to pivot the whole business to that. Uh shortly after it sold all of its juices and non energy products to coke um this was at the time where Coke took up about a twenty percent stake in the company as well. It now carries out i think all its distribution as well for the business but yeah, so like it's what we were saying. no one would ever pick monster if you were if you had a time machine and you didn't know much about the stock market and you had to go back to nineteen ninety two what stocks would you be buying apple yeah. microsoft amazon yeah. whoever. And then it's a company like Monster that has just yeah. been able to grow its revenues by like 7,000% in that time, grow its earnings and just keep performing, grow market share, expand its geographies. So it's just, it's just cool to see ahead of all of the big names, we have a little mm. energy to company.
2: That's right. But there you go. You f- you look at our three success stories, as you said, where you have Cheesecake Factory, Shake Shack and Monster. We could have easily uh, as easily spoken about um, like Red Bull. Red Bull is a very interesting, quirky story. I don't have the facts at hand, but I remember uh, I think it was founded by either an Austrian or a German guy who decided like the only way to differentiate is by sponsoring crazy stuff. And we all know that's what <laughs> the trap people out of. The space jumping and and, yeah, all yeah. that kind of stuff, and and it's amazing how uh, there are so many success stories and in, in the food space. Now I have to say, it's also a, it's a it's a battleground. I mean, how, how many restaurants have failed? I'd say for every great success story, for every cheese, cheesecake factory, there's probably a hundred failed cheesecake factories. But nonetheless, it's great when they make it and they deliver something that the world needs.
1: Yeah. That's great. I actually really enjoyed that episode. Uh, me a break too. From the
2: usual program. What we talk about next week? Let's <laughs> oh, decide now live. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and that's <laughs> it no for today's times, show, man. folks. Thank you very much for listening. I'm going to cut off Emmett before this goes another hour. <laughs> Emmett, thanks for joining me today. Uh, remember, lads, if you have any questions you like answered or elevator pitches you'd like to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at my Wall Street HQ on tiktok at my wall street or simply just email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. If you're enjoying the show make sure to tell your friends about us give us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on and sign up for charging and fearless thanks for joining us today and we will talk to you next week